Mark 10:17 through 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man came up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Dana. You can be seated. As we move through the book of Mark, we come to the story that's, if you've read the Bible at all, it's a relatively familiar story. It grips our attention, sometimes called the rich young ruler. In this case, it doesn't say anything except that he was just a young man and he was wealthy. That's, that's really all we know about him. We, uh, we've been dealing with the kingdom of God, what it looks like, and last week we talked about how countercultural it is that Jesus called to put oneself last, to make oneself the last of all. And now we have what for our ears would certainly be countercultural, and it was for them as well, about how this man who was very wealthy uh, and his wealth making it difficult for him to enter the kingdom of God. On the face of this, it can be c- kind of troubling to an evangelical, a good 21st century evangelical. With Jesus' answer to the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? If you just look at it on its face, it kind of looks like what he's saying is, well, did you obey commandments? Did you do stuff like honor your father and mother and not steal and lie? Yeah, I did that. Okay, we'll give away your money. And then you'll be saved. So salvation's dependent on our works of obedience and giving away our money, right? That's a good evangelical answer. No, hold on. Let's back up a second. It's always a lot deeper. There's always, Jesus is always a lot more to it than maybe what we would want to do on first brush. Let's try to look through this together, and I want you to notice a few things in this. If you have your Bible, I'm going to start at Mark 10. We're going to go through it. Mark 10, beginning at verse 17. Jesus was setting out on a journey. A man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this seems to be on its face again a very profound question. You know, what good evangelist doesn't want someone saying, What do I have to do to have eternal life? And is it just this 
sincere question from this sincere guy, it looks like. And it looks, it can look again like Jesus is being sort of picky or testy as he says, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus picks out and says, well, why do you call me good? Boy, you didn't even take, take the, I mean, Jesus, he asked you this profound question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Why are you taking time to pick on the fact that he calls you good teacher? Just seems kind of, nowhere else does he really pick on. People call him, use adjectives like this for him all the time. Son of David, son of man, God, he never picks on them and say, why are you calling me son of David? Why are you calling me son of man? He could have equally done it many times through scripture. This is the one time he picks up on this guy's use of this adjective and this address that he gives to Jesus. Why? I think it's very instructive. Jesus sees into the hearts of people. Jesus knows your heart. You can say the right words. You can do all the right things. Jesus knows your heart. And if it's blackened with sin or blackened with this world, he knows. You're not fooling. You can fool me. I'm very gullible and naive, almost as naive as my wife. Together we make an incredibly gullible couple. We are. We'll believe anybody anything. I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. They tell me they're Christians. They tell me they're this or that. I'm like, okay. Part of me is really cynical, but part of me is quite gullible. (laughs) Jesus, on the other hand, is none of the sort. He's neither gullible nor cynical. He's truth. And he sees exactly into your heart. And what he did was he saw into this young man's heart. And the first thing he does is test what I'm sure this man thought was just a common address, good teacher. Agathos, the word for good there, means inherently good. It's not just you're a wonderful teacher, I like you. It means through and through your being there is goodness. And Jesus says, wait right there. There's only one that's good, Agathos. There's only one that in the inherent being is good, and it's God. So God equals good, not God equals not good, So where does that leave the rest of us? Because if you're saying that to me and acknowledging my inherent goodness, then everything else stands apart from that. Jesus calls very quickly this man's, this game he's playing, because I don't think this was a sincere inquiry from someone who really wanted the answer. I think what this young man will show is that he wanted to be affirmed in what he already believed. And don't we all want that? I certainly want God to say to me, when I get to those pearly gates or whatever it looks like, wow, Tim, you, of all the Christians on earth, your doctrine was the right one. <laughs> Don't you want that? The way you saw that passage in 1 Corinthians, Tim, I can't believe the rest of humanity didn't get it the way you did. You know? Because, believe me, we all have opinions, Christians, right? We all have opinions on how we see all these issues, right? Do we all agree? Is somebody wrong? Is it you? It ain't me. Yes, it is. I pray I'm at least 50% right. I probably am not that. But you know what? I know Jesus Christ is divine and Lord of all and died for my sins and rose again. And that's enough. If all my other doctrine is wrong, that is what I will be standing upon. So please, get down from the edge of the cliff on all those other doctrines. You may be right, and you may not. 
this man had come to Jesus with already determined where eternal life. I don't think he asked it sincerely because Jesus, I think, goes right to this common understanding that Jews would have had, which is that God blesses with material blessings the righteous. This would have come right out of Deuteronomy 28, which says, if you walk with God and do his bidding and walk in his ways and obey his laws, you will be blessed materially. Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 15. If you don't and leave that, you will be cursed and, and you will not be blessed. So there was this easy way to determine whether or not God was happy with you and you were blessed, right? Now, Certainly there's truth that if you walk according to biblical standards, you may well prosper, but you may not. And there are people who are rich through greed and exploitation that have not at all done it. It's not a 100% correlation. It is a basic principle. But there are people who will walk in integrity and walk diligently and still are not wealthy because of economic circumstances in their countries or whatever. So let's be really clear that this man had experienced great wealth and saw this correlation between what he had done. And Jesus, I think, says, look, have you done this Deuteronomy 28 kind of living? So let's read together what he says. Um, You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. He takes the ones that deal with relational between humans, doesn't he? So he takes those commandments, and and the guy says, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. I can see him saying, Yes, I'm measuring up here. Because, again, there's got to be a correlation. It reminds me, it's the Maria von Trapp. There's a song in The Sound of Music that's just a perfect example of non-grace. It goes like this, perhaps I had a wicked childhood, perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth, for here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should, so somewhere in my youth or childhood, right, I must have done something good. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) We all know that. That is the rich young man's philosophy. Somewhere in my youth, I, I must have done something good. Because in spite of all this, look how blessed I am. And in this, you see the man saying, look at the, the question itself, go back to the question itself. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Don't you want to do something The problem with Christianity and grace is that you just sit there and receive what you don't deserve, and it is so doggone unfair. It just, it it should grate against us as humans. Our flesh hates it. Because the flesh wants to earn grace. And it is unearnable. And if it doesn't bother you, if all the parables Jesus said about the workers who get paid at the last hour and the prodigal son getting all the benefit after spending all his money on wine, women, and song, if that doesn't bother you, you are holier than I am because it bothers me. Mark notes something that Matthew in the same telling of the story does not, but I think is quite profound. If you'll look, please, at verse um, 21 of Mark 10, he says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. 
even in his non-understanding of what eternal life was and how he inherited it, he loved him. He's about to put his finger right on the man's heart and turn his world upside down and light that man up. But he doesn't do it out of anger and he doesn't do it out of anything but a deep sense of love of telling the truth. And Jesus will put his finger right on your heart as well, but know that he does it because he loves you with a love that never fails. And here's what he says. Okay, you've done all these things. We've cleared that. We've cleared Deuteronomy 28 out of the way. You lack one thing. And then he tells him four things. You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it all to the poor, and follow me. Were all those four, do they make up the one thing, all those four? I want to tell you, I don't think so. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Does everyone then need to inherit eternal life? We all own things. I assume all of you here own things, right? So all of us going to hell? I, I hope not. I sure hope not. So just on its face, I'm not trying to defang the word. I'm just saying that literally there are believers and saints who've died owning things. But I think there is something that there is a one thing in here that we all need to look at. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We are tempted, I think, in our Western view, now 21st century Western Christians, to rewrite this question as this, how do I get into heaven? And I think that's not the, the question. When he says, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Zoe life, the word that he uses there, is it means spiritual life. It means life that everybody is alive, bios life. We're all alive, but not everyone is alive in the spirit. Not everyone is born again. Not everyone has that life. That is the life that Jesus offers. All of us gather bios life, but not everyone has that eternal life. Jesus, we get a glimpse of something that he talks about eternal life. When he prays, we overhear his prayer in John 17. And he says this as he opens this prayer to his father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Listen, because here's the answer. To know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life does not begin after you die. It's just a continuation of what we can begin the day that we are known and loved by God as his own. So, he says to him, this is your one thing. It is the thing you hold on to and value more than me. Because remember, he talked about those Ten Commandments. Don't defraud, honor your father and mother. There's one he didn't get to, did he? Don't have any other gods before me. Because the man could not have answered that one. I've done that. 
for all my life because we know by his response he had another God in his life that he valued more than following Christ. The word for follow there, and he says, come follow me, I think is the key one. For me, that's the key phrase. The word there, akuluthos in Greek, kuluthos is a road. Ah is simply the thing that says to go. So basically Jesus says, walk the road with me. Know me, walk alongside me. But in order to do that, the road's not wide enough for you and your other God to come. It's only one God that can walk along you with this road. It's got to be me or them. So he puts his finger on the man's relationship with his wealth. And he says, are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to see that even if it was blessing because you operated right, that to give it to the poor and to shed that means that you can walk with me. Can you possess something without it possessing you? Because, see, this is, again, it is about the heart. Where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. We measure our treasure by what our heart's affections go for. And it can go for it in our minds. If you don't say, oh, I don't know if I treasure it or not, what do you spend your time doing? Just just where do you spend your time, your creativity, your energy, your money? All the kind of things that we measure will reveal to you the treasure of your heart. Before we close, and we examine our, try to examine our own hearts in light of this passage. I, I, I just wondered this. As, as the man walked away, where does he go? Does he give up? We don't know. Does he give up seeking the answer? Does he try to get a better answer from another God, some, another teacher somewhere? He could have. There were teachers out there that would have told him that he was blessed and honored because of his wealth. There were teachers in that time that that would be there. There are teachers today who will tell you exactly what you want to hear. And if you want to be confirmed in the way you're living and that you're doing well and right, I can point you to, to bookshelves that will give you books that will affirm and confirm you and you don't have to change a bit. But it won't be Scripture and it won't be the God of the Bible, because he will lay your finger on. He takes no prisoners. He's a jealous God, and he wants all of you, every bit of you, because he loves you that much. For those of you who are married, I don't think you want a second spouse, right? It doesn't work very well, and Jesus will have nothing but you. And then from that position of following him with all of our heart, we can become disciples who give up everything. It's not an easy call, whether it's riches or anything else that's in your life that would want to take precedence over God. Luke 14.33 says this, Any of you who does not give up everything can't be my disciple. You say, well, if I give up all my money and sell all my possessions and give to the poor, can I be a disciple? No, you've got to give up everything. <laughs> that's just one thing. You might hold on to your longing for power or your lust for drugs or sex or something else or your fantasy life or whatever it is. Giving up your money is, that's just a little thing. Our hearts are so much bigger than that. To be his disciple is an everything or nothing proposition. But he's given up everything for us. 
how can we do less? As we close, I want you to just take a minute or two to pray. And I just want you to ask, Lord, is there anything in my heart that I value more than you? Lord, is there anything I need to lay down? Is there anything I need to sell and give away? Whether it's possessions or anything else, what do I need to do, Lord, so that I have no other gods before you? Would you pray with me, please? Challenge us, Lord, not to seek answers that would tickle our ears, but, Lord, to seek the one who is life itself. You are life, Lord, and truth. And, Lord, we ask that we would have no other gods before you.